trouble at a major Kansas City institution and one of the biggest frauds in American agriculture history. Both are topics today on this podcast. Welcome. You're on Deep Background. Well, greetings. You're on Deep Background for January 15th, 2020 is the calendar shows and time flies. Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board and my colleague and friend Derek Donovan joining us for today's podcast. And uh, in the first half of the uh, program, we're talking with uh, our friend Mike Hendricks, a star reporter who had a fascinating story in Sunday's newspaper about a case of enormous fraud involving a guy named Randy Constant. Uh, So that's about Well, where I'll stop, Mike, tell us about Randy Constant and what his fraud was all about. Well, Randy Constant is a farmer, excuse me, from uh, Chillicothe, Missouri, who committed what was one of the largest frauds in the history of American agriculture and probably the largest fraud in in organic uh, agriculture. um, In history. In history. And was sentenced to 10 years in prison this past August, and three days later killed himself. Um, partly, I suppose, because of the uh, the shame of uh, of, um, of he brought on his family, uh, but also because of some of the lurid details that had come out about how he spent the money. Talk to us a little bit about who Randy Constant <clears throat> was. I mean, he was. An upstanding uh, person in the community, Mike. He was in magazines. He was the Randy, model farmer. Randy Constant was indeed. He was a. He was seen as a model farmer. He was a, a you know, a, 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 a grew, grew up in Chillicothe. Uh, had been a, a, a jock. Uh, had uh, been the head of his Future Farmers of America chapter when growing up. He'd gone on to become a, a pillar of the community uh, and of his church. Um, and well liked, uh, well liked. Uh, went at his sentencing, seventy people uh, had written letters uh, saying that he was a great uh, pillar of the community and had helped out uh, right. doing all kinds of charitable things. Now, so what was he doing that was fraudulent? I mean, he was obviously growing crops, right, Mike? And then he was telling people or selling the crops as something they were not. He got, um, he was selling. Um, Soybeans and corn to be which he grew, which which he grew or bought from others, yeah. uh, which he he represented as being certified organic. The government has some certain rules on what is an organic crop. Sold this grain that was later used as animal feed uh, for chickens and beef cattle. And organic is important, right? Because people pay more for it because they like organic food. And the idea here was he would sell food to cattle and other livestock, and then you could sell the livestock as organic and get a better price for it. He was selling the the, uh, the grain for probably twice what you would get for conventional grain, uh, and the meat that the that was produced uh, because uh, from the feed that was also sold at a premium price. Yeah. Now. Derek, I'm sure you're an organic eater. I, I actually pay for an organic CSA. It's a, a community-sustained agriculture. It's uh, a charity. deal, isn't it's it? A, I mean, we should make right. sure that we understand this, that people really want to see organic food. 
But one of the most interesting things I thought about this case is that the way he was found out had to do with the fact that he had commingled some grain that might have been organic and wasn't, and one of his customers did some testing on it, and they found out it was genetically modified. But that's not the same thing as organic, is it? What's the difference there, Mike? Well, that's what happened. That was initially, that's what occurred back in 2007, that he was tripped up at one point in which he used genetically modified soybeans, represented them as organic, and someone had done some testing. And, and genetically modified crops are not allowable under the organic certification system that the government set up. It's a USDA certification. Correct. Later on, however, what he did was he took non-GMO corn and soybeans and represented, misrepresented it as organic. It had not, the, farmers, the farmers who grew it had not adhered to certain, uh, certain uh, regimens in, in terms of uh, how long they kept the the ground free of chemicals and i as i said i'm an organic consumer myself but are there actual verifiable uh scientific health claims to support organic crops as being better than conventionally produced uh no not necessarily uh, there's a lot of folks who believe there might be but it's not just in uh, i guess it, the idea behind organic farming is, is not entirely uh, entirely um, health-related either or what benefits it is to the ultimate consumer. People also buy organic food because they feel as if it's better for the environment. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to that because I thought one of the greatest parts of your story was at the end people were arguing, hey, no one was hurt in this deal. Everybody got their money. And right. since it's organic, not organic doesn't really have a health Outcome, no one was hurt. We'll come back to that. They paid more for their chicken. But just to keep the narrative straight, so we have this upstanding citizen in Chillicothe growing or buying grain, soybeans and corn, feed uh, uh, grains, who uh, claimed they were organic when perhaps they were not, or at least the entire batch was not. Um, and, and your story suggested that this loophole, which was extraordinarily lucrative for Randy Constant, was about as big as you could drive a truck through because of the way it's inspected, the oversight of the of the whole process. Basically, the farmer can say whatever he or she wants, right, Mike? And 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 therein lies the fraud. If if you have the paperwork to back it up, the way it works is uh, the government certifies private companies um, who go out and do the inspections once a year at at the farm level or whoever else or the and seller. what are they looking for to make sure you don't use pesticide to make, you know, they, you're using manure or whatever? They're looking, for, they're basically they're doing a, a, an audit of your paperwork to, to, to make sure that you're using maybe manure versus a chemical fertilizer that, and that, that tracing where, where you're, who you're selling it to and what kind of, how many acres you have um, of organic certified uh, uh, crop acres and how much that would produce what would be the yield off of those acres, and does that match up with what you're selling? Yeah. So, are you selling more than your crop acres could conceivably? Right. Conceivably. But produce? again, the 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 the, the um, implication I got from your piece was that gaming this system is pretty damn easy. And in fact, there was some implication, wasn't there, in your story that other people presumably may be doing this even now? If uh, I, the the message I got that is if you are committed to committing fraud, you can probably get away with it. Um, if you're devious enough, you can have a double set of books, 
I mean, they're 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 are trying to they are trying now being they being the government or to come up with new regulations that would would tighten up some of that some of that uh, that oversight in terms of the paperwork to, so that the paperwork's more transparent. So, for instance, in this case, Randy may have had multiple inspectors looking at different acreages, and they may not have been comparing uh, comparing their paperwork. So, for instance, he was buying grain from three farmers in Nebraska and a farmer in Missouri, at least according to the indictment. Those folks may have had their own paperwork. And the inspector for farmer A may not have been looking right. at what right. farmer B was doing. And again, uh, at the end of the day, there is no test that somebody can run on corn to figure out whether right. you it was can't put, raised you know, organic. mash it up, throw it in a beaker, and hold it up and go, well, that's clearly not organic. Right. I mean, that it, you really do have to take the word of the participants. You, uh, you can test, test for residues, and, and there are um, requirements that have been for the last several years that those inspectors, that 5% of the farms they inspect, they would, would do a residue test. A deeper examination. But they would test for residues, for chemical residues. But not every one. And even then, it depends on the timing. So if you get there and they sprayed, you know, right. a month or two ago or whatever, that's not going to show up. Right. And, and so that leads to the obvious question, which I think is always interesting in every fraud story, which is, how did he get away with it for so long? I mean, you could see a one-time deal or maybe, hey, boy, we got away with, you know, this this uh, shaky uh, approach one time, but God, if they ever find us out, we're in big trouble. But your reporting suggested it went on for at least a decade. And, and, and that, you know, again, seems like it's an exploitable loophole for someone. Well, what, I, what, uh, what the indictment, uh, which had been covered in other outlets uh, when it occurred about a year ago, and then his... his uh, his uh, sentencing last August covered a period from 2010 to 2017. And my reporting showed that it went back to at least 20, 2007, perhaps 2006. And even in 2007, when, as, as Derek mentioned, the, uh, the GMO soybeans were detected by a test by the end, the end, end consumer, that, that instance was reported to the USDA. They said, "Look, we got something funny here. And the, the, either right. either there's a bit of a big mistake, or somebody's trying to 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 uh, to uh, gain the system. Right, right. Gain the system. Nothing happened. And when I talked to the guy who reported it, he said I was the first person who, who had ever called who had called about it in right. the last uh, thirteen years. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which gets to the policy thing, which I want to take up in just a minute, but we can't go away from Randy Constant without talking about what he did with his ill-gotten gains, which uh, suggested that he was not only, you know, uh, keeping double books, but living a double life in some way. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't especially showy in, in Chillicothe. I mean, he wasn't, uh, he didn't drive, uh, you know, a really great car or have a huge house. It was just an ordinary sort of house. He spent a lot of money on a on an aquaculture, a tilapia farm. Indo he had this bunch of these tanks of right. fish in a, in a which was Walmart, it was not successful. Which right. was not successful. He lost millions of dollars on that, and that's what his attorney and a lot of folks <clears throat> want us to believe is he's spent a lot of the money on that. Right. But he also took his family and about a, to a Hilton Head uh, every every summer. All twelve of them, you know, three kids and their grandkids, and. 
And he, he went to Las Vegas. And, he, and, and so that was all showing. You go on the Facebook pages of the family. Yes, they're showing them yeah. out there all, all at Hilton Head. What wasn't known was that he, took it, he admitted to taking more than 20 trips to uh, Las Vegas where he gambled and, um, and had women. Um, he had uh, he hired for hired prostitutes. They call them escorts. And, and, uh, and, and basically kept three women out there supported them on the payroll uh, they were on, they were on on the payroll plus he supported their living lifestyles right. one of whom uh, he you know uh, treated her to a trip to Spain and a, and what we call a boob job <laughs> and one of the most interesting things about this story is how his veneer of Midwestern nice gave him cover on this you Correct. know I, I'm a huge fan of, of well yeah. right but he, so here's the question that follows from that Derek which is it, do we really believe he's the only person right. who knew about this? No, um, he's not. And uh, I mean, he, a fraud of this size cannot really conceivably be run by one person alone. Well, I think this this one fraud was run by one person alone. I don't know how he kept the balls up in the air all yeah. the time. But my sources tell me there are others out there doing it. And there was. Uh, Randy himself tried to finger a farmer in Missouri, who I mentioned in this story, saying that he was part of the uh, conspiracy. That farmer denies it, yeah. and there's been no charges. Right. And, but the reality is that producing these crops organically is much more costly than conventional methods. And so it, it would stand to reason that if he was able to undercut the market so much, if it was by that type of margins, there have to be other people out there, too, who could come close to his prices. Well, not only that, but other non-organic farmers going, well, now, wait, or exactly. other organic farmers going, well, how is how is he doing what I can't well, do? Well, the thing was, as the story pointed out, about two or three years ago, the Washington Post did a, a, a stories about a lot of organic grain coming in from from foreign countries, big shipfuls of, of them. They were coming from countries in the Black Sea region, and there were... They they had their paperwork, but they for this vast number amount of of grain, but they came from areas where there weren't that many organic farms. So there was yeah. fraud going on, and a lot of the focus has been had been on these foreign imports of, of grain when until it's happening and when this happened. Suddenly, yeah. suddenly here's Randy Constant doing yeah. it, and there's other farmers out there doing it still. Yeah, all right. So before we leave Randy Constant, uh, he was caught. Uh, pl- pled guilty? Uh, was there a trial? Sentenced? I mean, just he, end his story. He, he pleaded guilty, as did the other four farmers. Um, he got the, the biggest, uh, the, the longest sentence. In fact, I found there very few people have been convicted of organic grain or organic food fraud in the last 10 years. And his sentence was by far the longest, 10 years, and at $128 million forfeiture, which is the same thing as a fine. Right, right. And he took his own life. He took his own life three days after his sentencing. All right. So let's wrap up the conversation by talking about the policy implications. First of all, Derek, are you going to keep eating organic? Or, <laughs> well, that's I my, mean, that, that's I one mean, of the biggest it, Because that's the other part of it, isn't it, that it really does taint this idea that if you buy organic and pay extra for organic food, that maybe you're not getting what you think you're getting. And your story quoted uh, a woman who is an uh, organic industry bigwig who is concerned about this because ultimately, don't people have to worry about whether they can trust any label in the grocery store when they walk in to buy their salmon or Swiss chard or whatever it is? Well, what uh, what folks told me, and I really didn't get into this in the story, but I, is, is that the consumers have to do their homework. You buy from a co-op. You can see. I, I imagine you n- know 
who these people are, trust that they're doing things the right way. So, uh, I talked to a guy who said, you know, he goes to his local farmer's market. He, you know, he knows these folks or he knows of them. He's done a little research. When you go into a, a, a big box store or whatever and they have something that's certified organic, you might want to just question whether it is or not. And, and perhaps it is, but you need to do a little bit more homework. So how do you, you fix really that, Mike? I mean, how do you, I mean, you know, I go to the big box store and I look at a chicken and it's organic and it, you know, no, no growth hormones or whatever. And now I'm skeptical of that. Is that fixable in any way? I mean, or do you have to have such a bureaucracy to test all this stuff that the cost would be prohibitive and not worth it? I, well, it's the same thing with just about every right, product out right. there. I mean, you do you trust that Ford you're driving, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, but there's, you trust the system. Right. But, or do uh, you trust the water you drink or the other things that, you know? But you can't be 100% on, it, on anything. Right. And, but it comes to organic food, we do know that the government is, is going to try and, and toughen up the, uh, the inspection system. Uh, they're going to publish a rule sometime this this year, and that may do a, a lot. Right. Randy Cotton's Constance uh, sad end and uh, and conviction also may scare off some right. folks from doing. Or I must say, I'm reading your story. I'm just wondering if farmers out there going, "Hey, this is not a bad." I mean, if you can get away with it that long, or try and disguise it better or easier. Well, that may be one reason that when I I could not get anyone to say exactly how he got away with it. Because I know, he, I was told, his lawyer told me that he told the government everything. The government is not telling us right. everything because they don't want, want to provide a, a roadmap to the next guy. And well, they've also probably got other other cases out there that they're investigating, you would I, think. I would think that, that there's going to be some other indictments to pop at some point. But at the end of the day, the thing is, when you are misrepresenting conventionally grown crops as organic, nobody's really going to end up getting sick or hurt or anything. Where It's very different from GM you know, faking a bunch of airbag stats and people die. Right, and so, right. But it's very expensive. Very. I mean, the, the millions of dollars in this market that may be fraudulently obtained. But in this case, I mean, part of the, part of the problem in this, in this case uh, was that the people who bought or the companies that bought Randy Constance Grain, they are, have some responsibility to They were right. willing to, to, to look the other way. Look the other way to say, I don't really care as long as I have this certificate. It's organic. I can prove that it's organic and send it to the next guy. Right, right. And I'll get my money. Now, it's a fascinating story and really just layers and layers of weirdness and illegality. And uh, I recommend highly that if you haven't had a chance to read it, go read it at KansasCity.com. Mike Hendricks and the story of Randy Constant, a farmer who pulled off one of the biggest frauds in American agricultural history right. and paid uh, a price for that when it uh, finally ended. Thanks again, Mike, for coming in and chatting with us. Derek, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk with Steve Vakrod about uh, another big institution in Kansas City with question marks hanging over its head. Stay with us. You're on Deep Background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at The Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to The Star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. 
Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So go grab your computer or mobile device and head to kansascity.com background. And hey, thanks for listening. Okay, back now for the second half of Deep Background for January 15, 2020. Derek Donovan's still with us and our buddy Steve Vokrot now here to talk about a couple of stories involving one of the better known institutions in Kansas City, UMB, which I, we used to call United Missouri Bank. Do they even go by that anymore? <laughs> uh, it seems to be officially stylized as yes, UMB, UMB Bank Anyway, now. for everyone who's listening who has some history, that's the bank we're talking about. A, a longtime presence in Kansas City involving the Kemper family, which is a name, of course, most of us recognize. And there are two stories, Steve, you've worked on uh, involving the bank and the more interesting one maybe is what's going on with with their trusteeship of the Thomas Hart Benton trust or one of them anyway tell us what's going on there yeah there's a there's a lawsuit that was filed in a probate court in uh, Jackson County uh, in December and it was filed by the heirs of the Thomas Hart Benton family in Thomas Hart Benton. Uh, famous is, artist. As a lot of people, but not everybody will know, is a famous artist who spent a lot of his time in Kansas City. And he died in 1975, and UMB Bank became the trustee for the estate, essentially the property uh, that would, uh, uh, you know, Thomas Hart Benton's property, including things like stocks and real estate. But a lot of it was his art collection, both his art and uh, art of other prominent artists. And what the family of uh, uh, Thomas Hart Benton is saying, the family or the beneficiaries of the trust, is that the is that UMB Bank lost some of the artwork, that they can't account for it, at least, uh, that they sold some of the pieces for below the value, below what would be market value, and that if they were uh, doing their jobs properly, they would have been able to fetch a lot more for the trust uh, when they dispose of the, of, of the artist uh, or of the pieces of art. And they also allege that UMB was involved in some level of self-dealing in their handling of the trust, which, you know, for a bank, those are, those are, those are serious, those are very serious claims. Because if you think about the very idea of a bank, you are, you know, whether you're a depositor, uh, you know, whether your paychecks go to the bank or whether you're hiring them as a trustee to oversee assets, the very notion of a bank is that you give them something for safekeeping that is then made available to you when you need it. Right. And what the Benton lawsuit alleges uh, is that UMB Bank failed in that uh, in that regard as it relates to the Benton estate. Now UMB says, you know, that well, as they often, as defendants in civil claims often do, they say, well, we can't talk too much about it. But they've they've used it, they've used the word misguided to describe the uh, Benton uh, claims. Yeah, and, tell me a little bit if we know about the nature of the trust it, because he died so long ago. You assume it's a, the trust has gone on for some years. Did the family receive an income from the trust? Was there licensing or other things that the bank was involved in? Or was it, in essence, just a place to park the paintings, park the assets, and then, you know, the family would get whatever benefit it gets from the trust whenever it wanted to? According to the lawsuit, the... UMB Bank had some level of authorization or ability to dispose of it, dispose of some of the assets they could Without sell. Without the other family in, involved. 
Um, that's not. Or do we know? It's not entirely clear yeah. uh, to me, but uh, you know, they 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 did have some level of authorization to be able to sell or display some of these pieces of art, and and some of that happened. But what the Bentons say, the Benton family says, is that you know UMB Bank didn't do even that properly. That there were, you know, one of the things that is sometimes done in the art world is that you would sell lithographs of a painting ahead of time to build the market, and then you could sell a piece for more uh, than you would if you hadn't done that. And that they point out a specific instance or two in which UMB didn't do that, and therefore an original painting was sold for Less below its market yeah, value. Yeah. And just so people get an idea of the dollar figure we're talking about here, what do they? What does the family think the total number of artworks and value in uh, money monetarily is for these? Well, they say that the, the, the lawsuit says that the trust itself collectively is valued in the millions. There isn't a precise amount that's described in the lawsuit. Uh, but they say the value of the estate is, is, is a multi-million dollar uh, estate. As far as the art, the, they, they allege that there's more than 100 pieces of art that UMB Bank is una- unable to account for. That's a huge number. Yeah. Um, uh, how how I think most of us, uh, Steve, are familiar with how trusts work, but generally I think we think of trusts in terms of just cash that you you die and then your estate goes into a trust managed by a trustee in this case a bank and it's money and then the money is distributed to heirs or or kept or whatever. D- did you and B actually have? Thomas Hart Benton paintings in a vault somewhere? I mean, how does that work? Or do they, does as, as trustees, do they arrange for a place to store the work? I mean, I think it's so unusual that the trust involves actual physical assets and not just money. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, a trust can include, you know, physical property. Correct, uh, and maybe that case. happens more than we know. I mean, yeah. maybe, but, the, but I think what's so unusual about this is the idea that, in essence, the bank had trustee Custody right. of these works. Yeah, there was there was a vault that was uh, that housed these that did house these paintings and in banks, as I understand it, you know, and I've done some banking reporting. Um, no, I, I wouldn't call myself a bank expert, but in some <laughs> of the reporting I've been doing, even on this story, is that you know the trustee thing is it's. Uh, it's not a big money maker for banks necessarily. You know, you get a fee, of course, uh, you know, some percentage of the assets that exist or are disposed of, but it's not a huge money maker. It's more of like kind of a prestige play for a bank, you know, if you can. At this level. Yeah, at I mean, this banks level. are trustees. For, you know, most of us have some sort of estate planning that involves sort of a third or fourth level trustee if others are, you know, right. typically it's your spouse or whatever. but. But in this case, yeah, this is you could see this would be a prestige play. You know, we're the trustee for the Thomas Hart Benton estate. Right. And and so but it's not a big money. It's not like the commercial lending division right. of the bank. And so but that doesn't that doesn't uh, that doesn't distract from the visibility of these allegations that are in this lawsuit, which again, like I said, kind of speaks to the very core of what a bank does and is supposed to do. Now, Derek, we know you're a big art collector. (laughs) In the first half, by the way, a big organic uh, consumer (laughs) of uh, organic food and now a big a big uh, art collector. Thomas Hart Benton's stock generally goes up and down, doesn't it? Sometimes he's one of the great artists of the 20th century, other times 
he people comes, say he's a little overhyped. Comes in for a little bit of criticism. But, but he's well-known in Kansas City. I correct. Mean, Kansas Cityans sort of claim him, and he lived over, you know, over off of uh, Southwest Traffic Way, yeah, right, in Valentine, right. Coleman Highlands, actually, I yeah, think that yeah. is. Yeah. And, of course, you know, anybody who's been to uh, Jefferson City, to the Missouri Capitol, if you've been into the Senate Lounge, there is a four-wall mural that he's responsible for there that is just pretty yeah. breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, do, what do the heirs seek in this lawsuit? An accounting? Do they want to dissolve the trust? Do they want to move the paintings? A penalty? What What are they asking the court the, to do? They're asking for damages. They're also asking for a judge to remove UMB as the trust or as the trustee. As the trustee the for trust. the estate. Yeah. And what would happen in that case? I guess they'd have to give all the paintings back and then the family would have to figure out another place to put another institution. That would be my best guess. Yeah. yeah. Would, would, is there any... Uh, we'll move on to the other part of this story in just a minute, but is there any reason why the family for all these years would want a trustee? I mean, why not just at some point take possession of the paintings from the trustee and then do what with them what you will if you're the family? It's just uh, yeah. easy. I mean, is it easier to leave it in the hands of a trust? Or it, I mean, conceptually, it could be because that's what the uh, Thomas Hart Benton wanted was for the the property to be put in a, in a trust. Right. And, you know, and maybe it, his it, understanding is that a trustee would have a better way of maximizing the value of the estate over a long period of time, maybe more than the family. Right. That's sometimes what can be somebody's motivation is, I've got a substantial estate, I've got assets that I want to be have handled in a in a way, way that's you know responsible and thoughtful and planned out, um, and so that could be a reason that you know your your property can end up in yeah. that state. I guess what to, to sort of wrap up this conversation. What surprised me about your original story is not that this dispute came up necessarily, but that the trust has been in place for a long time apparently, and and this has just come to light. I mean, you know, that's fifty years or whatever the math would be, forty years. And for, for the family now to say, in essence, well, this this management was not what it needed to be is interesting to me. Yeah. That they didn't move earlier to seize it in 1980 or 1985 or whatever. Uh, maybe they trusted at the time that UMB was doing the job they thought needed to be done. Yeah, could be. Yeah, okay. Let's move on to the next subject, which is allegations of, of some, uh, some problems at the bank uh, that have nothing to do with Thomas Hart Benton. Why don't you talk about those allegations former employee right yeah and actually there are there is a connection with the benton matter in this other uh in this other story but the the, the basics are that last year there was a uh, banking executive at umb who was fired she was fired in april and um, she had been hired away right to come to umb is that did i miss yeah she'd that? worked at bank of america right. i believe and she had worked there i think for 13 years um and she was over the private wealth uh uh the private wealth division of the bank um which i think would fall under the supervision uh or would have the responsibility of supervising things like the benton matter and she says in a complaint that was filed with the Missouri Human Rights Commission, and you know, not to get too deep into the weeds of employment law, but if you feel like you've been fired for reasons that were improper, the first thing you do is you file a complaint with this Missouri Human Rights Commission um, or the EEOC on a federal mm -hmm. level, and you, you start the process that way. And I'll get to why it's interesting that I even have this in the first place in a minute. <laughs> but was the, the, the core of her complaint is that the stated reason for her firing was that 
she didn't escalate sooner to Mariner Kemper, who's the chairman of the board. The seriousness of the litigation risk that the bank was facing uh, from the Thomas Hart oh, Benton matter. That's interesting. Um, but what she says is that she was actually fired because she had called out some discriminatory behavior uh, on the part of uh, some of the banking executives and harassment too. Harassment, yeah. you know, allegations of crude remarks that uh, top-ranking uh, executives were making. There was an incident, a bizarre incident, or seemingly bizarre incident, in which. Uh, you know, the bank chairman's accused of tackling, uh, chasing and tackling a HR director. An instance um, of, of showing an explicit um, sexual photo on a phone. Yeah, a, 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 a photo uh, depicting a male penis uh, and uh, to, to, the, to this female employee. Um, and so she says that, she, and that she was given an instruction to manage out older employees who were nearing retirement. Um, and so she's made the claim of discrimination and retaliation. Um, and she's filed a lawsuit against the bank. And interestingly, her lawsuit does not at this time uh, make the actual claims of retaliation and discrimination. And the only reason I know about these other claims that she's made to the Missouri Human Rights Commission, uh, you know, and, and those complaints aren't typically public record, is that the Banks' lawyers included that as an exhibit to the lawsuit um, for reasons that aren't clear to me. Um, but that's how I got a hold of them and then yeah, and that's reported where the them story out. came from. So let's take these two stories together, even the connection, the interesting connection, uh, Steve, you just talked about. UMB is a bit of an institution in Kansas City, isn't it? And the Kemper family is one of the best known families. Both of these stories are. Uh, what impact do they have on the family and broadly UMB? Well, it's it, it may be too soon to tell, but I, I think I think it's the first time that I can remember since I've been reporting in Kansas City. So that goes back, you know, not that far, but like 2006. I mean, they've enjoyed a very good reputation. Typically, they've been thought of as kind of a pillar of the community, the bank and the family, you know, side by side. And have been um, here for many, many years. Yeah, I mean, the bank tra draws its lineage to, I think, the late 1800s. Um, uh, I think it started under a different name, but became UMB Bank. And so, you know, these are, is, is I think I even wrote in the headline, you know, a venerable institution, a uh, venerable bank, you know, well thought of. I think them and Commerce Bank, which is another uh, bank in Missouri that has connections to the Kemper family uh, broadly, uh, you know, the, the, those two banks, I recall, got plaudits in the financial press during the financial meltdown of 2008 because they were ones that had avoided and you know been very conservative in the face of uh, some of the more unscrupulous lending practices that were going on that caused the meltdown. Yeah. They were kind of seen as the examples of how to do banking responsibly. And so when these claims, these allegations, which I should point out have not been tested uh, or adjudicated in a court of law. Uh, either one they, of them. Yeah. Right, either one of them. I mean, they're allegations. Uh, and, and I should also say that the bank strongly disputes uh, the, the claims made by the former uh, executive, uh, you know, that, that even so having these allegations in the public sphere is an unusual and probably uncomfortable position for the bank to be in. I've talked to other people in the banking industry who say that they're very, you know, that they're surprised by what's come out. Right. And, 
they kind of want, you know, is that the type of thing that clients are going to worry about? Yeah. And the status quo in the banking industry is not for the senior management to take a lot of public positions. And, you know, it, it's a fairly retiring uh, management class. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in banks, banks are private organizations. They, you know, there, there's some public reporting that they have to do with the FDIC, you know, call reports and things like that. But they tend to be very private. And for, for allegations like this to come out, whether it's UMB Bank or another bank, is a, is a fairly unusual circumstance for them to be placed in. Yeah. But, but as we wrap up this conversation, the Kemper family broadly in the, in the public, political, social structure of Kansas City is very well known, and yet has often stood a little bit outside of that, hasn't it, Steve? In your experience, the Kempers, you know, uh, they, they've worked on the American Royal, for example, but sometimes a Mariner Kemper has, but sometimes, the, you know, it's been a struggle to raise a little bit of money. And the Kempers have already, always seemed a little bit outside of the normal uh, business power structure in Kansas City. Do I m- misapply that, or do you think that's true or not true? Well, I think they've they've been a fairly public, the family has been a fairly public and influential family in different ways. Um, so, for example, as you point out, Mariner Kemper was very involved with the American Royal. And Still per- is. And, and, and particularly at a time when they were trying to get a new facility in Kansas City, Missouri, and it didn't right. work. Right. And, of course, now they're working on relocating to uh, Kansas City, Kansas. Um, Crosby Kemper the third is the outgoing library director, but was seen as a very influential uh, and, and effective library manager. Many would say um, transformational. Transformational. And it, I, it, it was interesting because there had to be a state law to get changed <laughs> to even allow him to have that position because right. he didn't have a certain degree uh, to, 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 uh, that would have And just so we're clear, him. Crosby's work at the library has been pl- uh, you know, applauded and was exemplary. His other political positions have been a bit askew of the mainstream in Kansas City. He would admit that. I mean... He, Probably. I mean, uh, you know, he... He's with he, the Show Me Institute. He, he works with Rex He's the co-founder of the, you know, right. pretty libertarian, uh, fairly conservative. I think he ran for public office one time in the 80s as a Republican. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's been very critical of the city's development policies and tax policies. But at the same time, he championed and got convinced voters to pass a tax increase for the, for the library. library. No um, question about it. Uh, um, and his political views, by the way, have moderated over the years. Maybe he would or would not admit that. Jonathan Kemper is with Commerce, correct? Yep. Yeah. So the Kemper family, again, is embedded in the Kansas City financial business. And yet you always get the sense they're not. You know, again, from my experience, they weren't part of the, you know, what I always called the Irv Hockaday, you know, Hallmark, uh, Bill Hall, uh, you know, some of those other folks that are connected with the commerce of Kansas City. The Kempers have always seemed a little bit of, you know, outside of that to feel free to disagree if you don't think that's true. But I've always sensed that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, my sense is that they're that that they were fairly interwoven with the the, the, the civic and business uh, dealings in Kansas City, and, and again in different ways. Whether it's from banking, I mean, we were talking about Crosby Kemper, and he was the chairman of or the the president of UMB Bank for a time before he went over to the library. So they've been they've been fairly present and active, maybe in somewhat you know somewhat behind the scenes ways in, in some ways, but 
Um, they're, they are an important, uh, they are an important family in Kansas city. And I would argue St. Louis too. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not denigrating their importance or their significance. I've just always been interested in the interplay of those sort of heavy hitters in the private sector, the civic council types. And you don't, I didn't never got the sense that the Kempers were involved at that level in the way that other players were in Kansas city over, over the many decades that I've been working here. Yeah, I mean, I've run into like Jonathan Kemper. He was involved in the uh, Citizens Association back when that was a Four. more, a, a kind of a more of a thing. Uh, you know, he's involved in the. Uh, you know, I saw him at the Downtown Council uh, Board of Directors meeting not too long ago. Right. So I think, I think he's involved. He invites he t- reporters to lunch on occasion. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so you know, I think, uh, you know, I think the Kempers. You know, in the stratosphere of you know significant and influential Kansas City families, I would certainly put, right up there, put, no put them as one of the uh, maybe top shelf ones. Uh, William, the patriarch, is credited with getting Harry Truman into politics. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, there's no question they're an important family. It's yeah. just always interesting to me how the interplay of those families, uh, one to another, because Kansas City has lots of that sort of history of who's up, who's down, that type of thing. And will forever be known for Kemper Arena, the museum. Right, right. right. no question about it. All right, well, Steve Vakrat, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. We'll obviously follow this story on yep. here on the pod, and, and if there are developments, we'll bring them to you. And my good buddy, Derek Donovan, as always, thank you for joining us uh, for this discussion. I'm Dave Helling with the STARS Editorial Board, and you have been on Deep Background. Deep Background.